Did you know that the first Christmas card was printed, that was printed, was printed in 1843? And did you know that it was printed in London, England? The message on the card read simply, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. But this card was not without controversy, however, because the picture on the card, the image that was on the card, was a group of people celebrating drinking wine. And so people said, hey, this is scandalous to have alcohol and Christmas together. You just can't do that. But time passed, and I guess feelings kind of eased a little bit because that same card is also the most expensive Christmas card that's ever been purchased. In 2001, it was auctioned off for $35,800. It's a lot of money for a Christmas card. Um, did you know that in America this year, over 2 billion Christmas cards will be sent? And another 500 plus million electronic cards will be sent. Men will give approximately 15% of those cards, women covering the other 85%. Far more Christmas cards will be given than every other holiday combined. And the most preferred message on a Christmas card, the most preferred saying on the Christmas card, it's not happy holidays, it's not season's greetings, it's simply Merry Christmas. So. I don't know how much you know about Christmas cards, I didn't really expect you to know that much, but it would be interesting, kind of fun, to find out how much you know about the Christmas story. So this morning, we're going to do things a little different. I'm going to invite you to keep your Bibles closed as we go through the Christmas story together, take a little quiz and see just how you do. So we'll have some fun this morning, maybe get some pen and paper ready. There can be no Scrooges in the room, all right? We're all going to join in and have some fun together. You got to play along. So I'm going to ask some questions about the Christmas story without looking at the biblical account. We're going to see how well you can do, all right? We're going to conclude our series, No Room in My Inn, as we look at the story of this new life that was given, Jesus Christ. So Let's get going. Question number one. Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem, A, on a camel, B, in a Ford pickup, C, with Joseph walking and Mary riding on a donkey, or D, none of the above. All right, you got to move kind of fast here, all right? I heard some C's out there. The correct answer is D, none of the above. The Bible tells us in Luke 2, 4, and 5, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. It's possible that Mary and Joseph were too poor to even own a mule. They're just starting out. They're teenagers, okay? Joseph, he's the carpenter. It's not a lucrative profession in those days, so we don't really know how they got there. The scripture doesn't tell us. So question number two, let's see if we can do a little better. Question number two, when Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, the innkeeper's actual words were, A, why didn't you make reservations? B, please use my stable. C, there's no room for you in the inn, or D, none of the above. Okay, I'm hearing some more C's, a few D's out there. The answer is D, none of the above. The Bible simply informs us that there is no room in the inn. 
in Luke 2, verse 7. We don't know who said that. You know, with all the travelers heading back to their hometown to register according to the emperor's decree in Bethlehem, it, it was a small town in the hill country, okay? So probably, this was probably the only inn in the town. It's possible that even when they arrive there that they don't meet the innkeeper at all. We have no record of Joseph even knocking on the inn's door. It's possible that just in the courtyard of the hustle and bustle of everything going on that they're told, hey, there's no room there. It's full. What we do know is they end up in a stable. And the stable in those days in Bethlehem, it was a, it's a card, carved off place in the rock. It's kind of like a cave. And so it's there that Joseph and Mary in this Bethlehem hillside, that's where they end up. And this is where Mary will give birth and she'll lay Jesus down in a manger, Luke tells us. So I'm going a little extra biblical on this question, but it does bring us to question number three. A manger is actually A, a wooden cradle, B, the place where animals slept, C, a feed trough for animals, or D, none of the above? There's some A's, some C's. The correct answer is C, a feed trough for animals. And this is not the cozy picture that we have sometimes on our Christmas cards of just this warmth and the adoration of the animals. You know how it is. They, they, the animals, they just lay there so peacefully, so nice. They put halos over their heads, you know, as they look up at baby Jesus. So uh, peacefully laying there in the manger. But this is not a nice wooden cradle, not, a, not even a wooden feed trough at all, and there's no warm campfire there. In fact, in those days, the, the manger would have been made out of rock, stone, lime, limestone to be precise. So he was laid in a stone feeding trough, probably some hay there. And the last thing that anybody would want to do in a stable is start a fire. Okay, so there's, there's probably no fire there to keep them warm. This is just uh, Cold hillside there in Bethlehem. You know, the pictures on our Christmas cards are not actual photographs. And as beautiful as they are, in some ways, they kind of dehumanize Jesus a little bit. They, they clean up the scene. They, they sterilize it for us. And it takes away a little bit of the humanity of our Savior. This rightful heir to the Davidic throne, the equal sovereign of heaven. He was born in a cave at the hands of a carpenter. This was a smelly, dark, cold, confusing, painful, noisy, lonely scene. However, in this scene, Joseph and Mary would have their hearts filled with boldness and courage and hope as visitors would soon arrive. The first visitors were shepherds. Question number four. The number of angels that spoke to the shepherds was A, a heavenly host, B, one, C, none, or D, we don't know. Here are some B's. I heard an A. The correct answer is B, one. One angel spoke and delivered the message in Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. One angel spoke to the shepherds, and then he was joined by a host of angels 
who began praising God, not speaking to the angels, but praising God and saying, according to Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The one angel gave the shepherds a clue by which they could identify the Savior, which leads to the next question. The sign the shepherds were looking for in identifying Jesus was A, a Christmas tree, B, three wise men, C, a baby lying in a feed trough, D, a star that rose in the east. Okay, I heard some B's and C's, some D's. Okay, the correct answer is C, a baby lying in a feed trough. You know, it was so unusual in those days for a newborn baby to be out in this stable in a cave surrounded by probably flies and manure and noisy animals and just lying there. And this was the sign. I mean, surely there were other infants born in Bethlehem around this time, but Jesus was probably the only one birthed in such poverty-stricken conditions. So this would be the sign. Here's exactly what the angel said, verses uh, Luke 2.12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, we think of swaddling clothes as, you know, these nice clothes that you swaddle up your baby in to make the baby feel nice and comfortable, almost like it's back in the womb of his or her mother. Um, that was not the intended purpose of swaddling clothes back in these times. In, the, in those days, when you were traveling in the Middle East, uh, travel was very difficult. So there's all kinds of things that could happen. You could run into bandits. You could just have hardship on the journey, many trials. And so when the people traveled around in the Middle East in those days, they would, they would tie uh, some cloth around their waist. So if something were to happen to them and they were to die on their journey, that then they could be wrapped up for either transportation back to where they were from or to simply be buried there. And so... When we read this story, we see that the king of kings, he came lying in a stone feed trough, wearing death clothes. That's the sign. Even at birth, this king is preparing for death. And so when the shepherds come, this was the sign they were given. Some others would soon come to worship Jesus. They would be led by a star. Question number six. The star in the east was seen by A, three kings from the Orient, B, Persian astrologers, C, religious leaders, or D, more shepherds? B, good, you guys were listening last week. I got really nervous about this one. I was like, they, they better have been listening. Okay, B, Persian astrologers. They were magi. We learned from the ancient Greek historian Herodotus uh, that these wise men, these magi, these Persian astrologers, that they were in charge of training the Persian kings, the future kings of Persia. So uh, they were highly educated in the areas of languages, the science of mathematics, and no one could ascend to become the king of Persia without the magi's blessing, without going through their training and then getting their stamp of approval. And so now these Persian astrologers, they would follow a star, which likely, you know, they see in the sky and they travel over 900 miles to worship the one born king of the Jews. 
Which leads to our next question, question number seven. The wise men came to visit Jesus. A, in the house where, where Joseph and Mary were staying. B, while Jesus was lying in a manger. C, just after the shepherds returned to the fields. Or D, when Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt. Mostly A's, a B or two out there. The correct answer is A, in the house where Joseph and Mary were staying. Seems even this house, they, they didn't own a house at that time. Seems they were just staying there. And the text says that the, the wise men come and they see Jesus there with Mary, perhaps implying that Joseph was working or wasn't home at the time. We don't know. But question number eight, how old was Jesus when the wise men saw him? A, a baby, less than a year. B, a toddler, one to two years. C, a small child, three to four years. Or D, we don't know. Heard C, heard a D, B, A. We got all four, I think, on this one. But the correct answer is B, a toddler, one to two years. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 11 says, After coming into the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary. The word there is brephos, which means... Uh, uh, the word there is not brephos, which means baby. The word is pation, which means small child. And I know those of you who said C, you're thinking, well, small child, that could be three to four years for sure. Well, Herod's command in Matthew 2.16, it kind of clears things up for us. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. It's estimated that Herod had between some, somewhere between 14,000 and 20,000 baby boys murdered because Herod wanted to keep his crown. Ironically, Herod would only live uh, approximately one to three years after this command was given. He, he died of uh, chronic kidney disease, most likely, and five days before he died, his son thought that he was already dead because Herod was going down fast, and he began celebrating. Well, Herod found out about it, and from his deathbed, he gave the order that his son would be killed, and so his son was killed, and then Herod died five days later. When the wise men show up, they bring gifts, gifts for this toddler king. They bring gold, which signifies royalty. They brought frankincense, which was an expensive perfume that was burned during certain prayers or offering times by, by the priest. And they also brought myrrh. Question number nine. Myrrh was used, A, as medicine to relieve pain, B, to embalm the dead, C, both A and B, or D, none of the above. The correct answer is C, both A and B. This gift, it symbolically foretold the death that this Messiah would die. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, uh, Mark 15, 23 tells us that he was offered a drink mixed with myrrh to, to deaden the pain. But Jesus, he refused to take it because he would feel everything. He would, he would experience every bit of that suffering. So the shepherds, they worship Jesus. The Persian astrologers, they come and they worship Jesus. 
And Herod said that he wanted to go so that he too could worship Jesus. Obviously, he didn't. He just wanted to find Jesus so he could have him killed. But question number 10, how did Herod know to look for Jesus in Bethlehem? A, the Magi told him. B, Herod started following the star as well. C, Herod had the Magi followed. Or D, the religious rulers, leaders told him. The correct answer is D, the religious leaders told him. Remember, Herod meets the wise men and he finds out from them that they're going to worship the king of the Jews, the one born king of the Jews. And Herod is immediately furious because he is the king of the Jews. And so as soon as they leave, immediately, what does he do? He calls in the religious leaders. And they're able to tell him right away, oh yeah, we know the prophecy. This king will be born in Bethlehem. It's interesting who has room for new life and who doesn't, isn't it? The unclean shepherds who were not fit to worship, who were not allowed into the temple to be involved in any kind of worship uh, services or any kind of religious um, aspects of the community, they would come. They would worship Jesus. Foreign, Gentile, pagan, magi, they, they would travel over 900 miles to worship Jesus. But those who don't go, the religious leaders who even know the prophecy, who can quote the Bible verses, who go to worship services, no, they, they don't go to worship Jesus. The Jews who go to temple each, each week, no, they're, they're not there rejoicing the birth of this Savior. It's interesting, isn't it, that when John the Baptist was born, Jesus' cousin, just a few months earlier, that the streets are filled, people are singing and worshiping because John is born. Then the long-awaited Christ child is born. Oh, he's regulated off to a cave. There's, there's no worship when, when he's born. So, how'd you do on your Christmas quiz this year? Huh? <laughs> Heard some groans. Um, don't get your theology from Christmas cards, okay? That's the, the moral of this story. The good news is if you want to have room for new life, doesn't really matter how you did on your Christmas quiz. Think about this with me a little bit this morning. Jesus was born in abject poverty. He was born in a dark, dirty, dank cave. Mary and Joseph, they, they lay their newborn baby. They must have been so excited, but, but they have to lay him down in a stone feeding trough filled with hay, just a cold cave on the hills of Bethlehem. The only way they could keep this baby warm was to wrap him in death clothes. And it was in Bethlehem, too. You know, the last time anything good had happened in Bethlehem was when David was born. It had been a while. Bethlehem was known as the, the city of David, but it was a small country in the hills. I know nobody thinks much of Bethlehem. So the people who come to worship, we have shepherds coming to worship this king. They're, they're not some kind of welcoming committee. They're, they're not the well-connected people of society. They're not some greeting team. No, it's the unclean, the unfit who come. And then Gentile magi come, not the leaders in the community, not even from their community at all. But they travel 900 miles to worship Jesus. And we look at it and we think, you know, this is an awful place for a king to start, we think. And so we sing songs, you know, poor little Jesus boy. 
We didn't know who you were. We made you lay down in a manger. You know who doesn't lament the beginnings of Jesus, the birth, the circumstances of Jesus? God the Father. It's a manger. It's a cave. He's wearing death clothes. He's in the hill country of small town Bethlehem. And God said, that's good enough. I'm just looking for a place to start. See, Christmas isn't about God finishing. Christmas is about a place to start. It's about God starting. Over and over and over again, you see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. He doesn't wait for everything to be just right. He doesn't wait for you to get your life perfect. Just has to be good enough. Just a place to start. And so he chooses his 12 disciples he doesn't go to like the best universities in the, in the, around at that time and pick out the PhDs and said, oh, these are the leaders. These are the well-connected. These are my guys. No, he just chooses 12 ordinary guys just trying to live life the best way they can. And we kind of like that, don't we? Because we can pick out our disciple and we can say, you know, I'm kind of like him. Whether we pick out the introvert of the bunch like Andrew or the extrovert like Peter or whoever else, we pick him out and we say, you know, I'm kind of like him. So we like that. Thomas, a lot of people identify with Thomas. Thomas is the realist of the group. You know, Jesus tells everybody, all his disciples, I got to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed there. And Thomas says, you know what? Why don't we all go? Let's just die together. Thomas is also the one who says to his disciples, to the other disciples, you know, I just can't get that last image of Jesus out of my mind. I mean, I stood there, I, I, I watched as just the life was flowing from his body, I saw the blood dripping from his hands and spilling from his side. Oh, I know what death looks like. He was surely dead. I know you're telling me he's alive again, but I just can't see it. I mean, th this image is just etched in my mind. I can't get it out of my mind. There's no way that I can believe that it was really Jesus unless I could go and I could put my hands where the nails were, unless I could touch his side and feel that wound. That's the only way that I could ever believe that it's really Jesus who's alive. So what happens? Jesus shows up and Jesus says, look, Here's where the nails were. Here's the wound on my side. We have no record of Thomas ever touching Jesus at all. Seeing was enough. And he falls down and he begins to worship Jesus. And even today, he's not known as Thomas the believer. No, no, no. We call him Doubting Thomas. But it was good enough. It was a place to start. Simon Peter. We love Peter, don't we? I mean, he's the man. A lot of us say, oh, Peter, that's me. I'd be just like Peter. I tell Jesus, you know, Jesus, even if everybody else deserts you, even if everybody else runs away, you can count on me, Jesus. I'll stand right by your side to the end. And then what happens? He folds like cheap lawn furniture under the intense interrogation of a teenage girl. Can't handle it. You can count on me, Jesus. Oh, unless you really need me. And Peter starts to run. He just can't handle what he's done. He starts to run. And so after the interrogation, Jesus goes to find him. You know, I tell you all the time, the good news of the gospel is not that we find Jesus. It's that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has come to find us. And that's what Jesus does. He goes and he chases down Peter and he finds him by a lake. And they have breakfast together at that lake. And then Jesus asked Peter this question. 
He says, Simon. Uh-oh. Peter knew what that meant. Peter knew what that meant because that, that brought back memories of when Jesus asked another question. And he said, who do you say I am? And Peter was the one who stood up and said, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus says, you're right, Peter, that's it. But you didn't get that on your own. That was revealed to you by God the Father. And he says, based on that type of faith, you are the rock, you are Peter, and based on that type of faith, I'm going to build my church, and this is your name now, Peter. And so now by this lake, as they're on the shores of Galilee eating breakfast, it's Simon. He's back to chair one, just needs to connect with God again. And he asked the question, Simon, do you love me? And what does Peter say? Oh, Lord, you know everything. You, you have to know how much I love you. It was good enough. Not, not perfect. Not altogether good enough. A place to start. Fifth chapter of Mark has several healing stories in that chapter. One is about a man named Jairus who's, uh, who's a religious leader. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, my, my 12-year-old daughter is very sick can you come? Can you do something? Can you heal her? And so Jesus starts to go with Jairus. And as he's traveling with Jairus, he's interrupted. A woman comes to him, a woman who's been sick for 12 years. And she comes and she's thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, if I can just touch his clothes, that would be enough. You know, that came from an old wives' tale of the day, this kind of folk religion tradition that, uh, that holy men that somehow their holiness just kind of infused the clothes that they were wearing. And if she could just touch his clothes, that some of that power, some of that holiness would be given to her and it could somehow cure her. It's this primal type of belief, almost a magical kind of belief. It's, it's, it's uh, just at the beginning phases. But she comes, and you can almost picture it, can't you? As she fights her way through the crowd, and there's Jesus in his robe, and she just grabs onto a tassel at the end of it, holding on for dear life. And then in that instant, she's healed. And Jesus turns, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples, you remember it, don't you? They all turn to Jesus, and they see Jesus, what are you talking about? Look at the mobs of people here. Who hasn't touched you? But Jesus, he, he's waiting for this woman just to kind of stand up and acknowledge that it was her. And then she does. And she says, it, it was me. And what does Jesus do? He turns to her and he says, peace be with you, daughter. And he calls her daughter. He waits just long enough so that she can hear him call her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Is it a perfect faith? No, but it's good enough. It's a place to start. And Jairus, well, while they're standing there talking to the woman, perhaps just starting, starting on their travels again, then what happens? Messengers come and messengers come and they say, Jairus, your daughter is dead. There's no need for Jesus to come. What happens? Jesus goes anyway. He gets to the house, and at the house, everybody's grieving because this 12-year-old little girl is dead. 
And Jesus says, she's not dead, but asleep. And what do the people do? They laugh at him. They say, come on, Jesus. We know what death looks like. She's dead. Jesus doesn't leave. He stays anyway. And he goes over to her, and he says, wake up. Wake up. She does. Was their faith perfect? No. It was good enough. It was a place to start. Man brings his son to the disciples. Disciples try their best. They can't heal him. Man's frustrated. He didn't didn't know what's going to happen to his boy. He's angry. Nobody can help him. So disciples bring the man and the boy to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, listen, all things are possible with God if you believe. And the man turns around. He says, oh, boy, I believe. You almost get the idea that Jesus is just staring at him, just waiting for the next sentence. Come on. Come on, I I know you. you. You don't believe fully. And then the man says this, Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Perfect? No. Good enough. And Jesus heals the boy. It's a place to start. The thief on the cross, his one request, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. There's no long list of confession. We don't have any kind of repentance statement there. We, we don't even have this a true spelled out acknowledgement of who Jesus is, a belief statement of what this man believed. No, just one request. Don't forget me, Jesus. Remember me in your kingdom. Perfect? No. Good enough. A place for Jesus to start. You know, this time of the year, during the Christmas season, we drive ourselves nuts trying to make Christmas perfect, don't we? I mean, Christmas has to be perfect. How do the decorations look? How does everything look in the house? What's the, what's the party going to be like? What are the kids wearing? Do our sweaters go together? Because we got to get that perfect Christmas photo, you know. And if, if we got to whip everybody here, we're going to make sure they're smiling for that picture. It's got to be perfect. Who's cooking what? Oh, don't let her cook that casserole. She messes it up every year. It's got to be perfect. Never is. Never is. Some gift isn't kept a secret. Some kid knocks over a drink. Somebody at the family gathering just opens their mouth and says something they shouldn't. Things get a little awkward. No, it's never perfect. But it's good enough. The good news of Christmas is not that Jesus is finished. The good news of Bethlehem is that it gave Jesus a place to start. And we keep on fooling ourselves, thinking, oh, I'll follow Jesus since I have things together. You know, I got these things in my life, and if I just fix those, if I get on top of these things, then I'll be in a place where I can really commit. You know, as soon as I do this, take care of that, then I'll take the next step, then I'll move to that next that next level of, of discipleship and what I need to do in, in, in my obedience and following Jesus. Thing is, there's always one more mistake, isn't there? There's always one more thing to fix. There's always another, another thing we got to do. We never quite get there. We're always fixing to get ready. We just never do. Thing is, Jesus isn't asking you to be perfect. 
He's not asking you to have it all together. He's just asking for a place to start. You know, I hear it, you know, Steve, look at my life. It's crowded with all this junk. I know. Maybe it's so crowded that Jesus needs to move into the stable of your life. But if that's all it is, even faith as small as a mustard seed, it's good enough. It's a place to start. The good news of Bethlehem is that God the Father was delighted for Jesus to have a place to start. The good news of Christmas is not that Jesus finished, but that Jesus came to start. So this morning, the only thing you need to have to have more room for Jesus, for new life, is simply a place to start. That'll be enough. We see it all throughout the scriptures, story after story after story after story, not of perfect men and women who come to Jesus with it all together, saying, all right, I can be this super disciple. No, we see broken, hurting people whose faith isn't all put together, isn't all just right, but it's good enough. It's a place to start. Then we see religious people who think they have it all together. They think, oh yes, I've got it all squared away, all my I's dotted, all my T's crossed. But they don't go to worship. When the king arrives, they, they stay home because there's no room. They, they already think they've got it. Is there room in your life for Jesus to have a place to start, to take that next step of obedience, to experience this new life, this life that God gives? It's the best life. It's the only way to live. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when you came to Bethlehem, when you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to Bethlehem so many years ago, that you came just like one of us. Under humble circumstances, not, not some king in a palace, but a king in a stone manger. Letting us know that you can identify with all of humanity's struggles, and you would. God, forgive us for when we think we gotta, we gotta fix this area, we gotta do this, in order to move along in our relationship with you. God, help us just to give you a place to start so this new life can grow and can flourish because we believe and trust simply in you. God, we're asking for that this Christmas season by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.